Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, Radical Optimist. Sofia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to the show, in each episode you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet that we call home. Today's episode is a special recording from AI for Good an annual global summit hosted by ITU and XPRIZE. Marcus Extivore, the executive director of Prize Operations on Energy and Resources here at XPRIZE, chats with Andrew Zoli, vice president of Global Impact at Planet, and Sasha Lucioni, a postdoctoral researcher at Mila Labs. Together, we'll explore how artificial intelligence can help protect our planet by shedding light on environmentally destructive practices while identifying solutions for more sustainable usage of our planet's resources. So, what does the future of Earth look like with AI? Let's find out. My name is Marcus Extivore. I'm with XPRIZE. We're really thrilled to be in partnership with ITU, supporting the AI for Good Global Summit. I'm really excited about today's session because I'll be really honest with you, I've spent a long time in physical science, even dabbled in computing. I come from that, that world. But I'm not an insider in the AI and machine learning world, but I do work a lot in environmental sustainability and climate-oriented technologies and innovation. I've always seen AI and machine learning as another frontier, which is, I think, an obvious thing to say, but specifically as it's applied to Earth systems, whether it's satellite imaging, ground-based imaging, tracking and monitoring of different data, environmental monitoring, but also actually developing new solutions that can take us, I think, forward to that sustainable future. So... I'm personally really excited to get to learn a lot about this topic and dig in with a couple of experts. With us today are two fantastic panelists. Andrew Zoli is the Vice President of Global Impact at Planet. Planet is a space and AI-driven organization that's known for having deployed the largest constellation of Earth-observing satellites in history. Our other panelist is Sasha Lucioni, who is Director of Scientific Projects for the AI for Humanity Initiatives at the Mila Institute, and also the Director of Scientific Projects for AI for Humanity. Hello, Sasha. Hi. Hello, Andrew. Hi, it's great to be with you. Likewise. Uh, thanks for joining us here. So what we're going to do for your sakes and for our audience is I'll ask you both to give some short presentations, and I know you've prepared a few remarks to not just introduce yourselves and your work, but how your work fits into the context of our topic today, Future of Earth, AI, and the Environment. I think we're going to go to Sasha first and then to Andrew. So Sasha, whenever you're ready, please take it away and uh, give us a background of where you're coming from, 
from there, we'll go to Andrew. And after that, we'll be able to get into a bit of a discussion. So over to you, Sasha. So just to give you a little background, I am in Montreal, where it is actually snowing today. So <laughs> be happy wherever you are when it's, if it's warm. And to give you a background about me, I have a, a background in machine learning and, and, and computer science. And for the longest time, I, I felt really overwhelmed by the climate crisis just because it seemed so much bigger than I was, than I am. And back in, in my previous life, when I was a, an applied machine learning researcher, I was reading about these all these solutions like capturing carbon in the air, spraying aerosols in the atmosphere, going renewable, taxing carbon, and it all felt like such a big endeavor. And so I decided to, to, to plunge right in, to dive right in. And um, two years ago, I joined the Mila Institute to work on uh, AI and climate change initiatives. I work on a bunch of different projects. I'll present uh, some of them today. And essentially, I'd like to present different levels of things that can be done to tackle climate change. So things that have to be done by governments, by companies, by individuals uh, like you and me, and essentially what it would take to tackle this crisis. So just to, to give you a, a, a brief background of what I mean when I talk about machine learning. So AI of which machine learning is a subtype, is a general way of using data or information to help computers learn. And so it can be things in the, in the present tense, in the, in, the, in the present time, for example, putting things into categories. It can also be something in the future, so predicting where things are gonna go. So there's no magic, it's not this uh, black box of mystery, it's actually really concrete ways of, of helping computers just get a, a better grasp of data. And now what does it mean for climate change? Me and 20 colleagues working in machine learning all over the world, we put our heads together and wrote a paper that's quite long, but essentially um, that talks about the different applications of AI in, in tackling climate change. So we wrote this paper all together, and then after that we created uh, an organization that we call Climate Change AI. We meet regularly and we try to facilitate Essentially, the vision of our organization is how to empower work that meaningfully addresses the climate crisis using AI. So we make connections happen, we work on our own projects, we work on partnership projects. So, and within this organization, I'm in charge of the of resources and data sets because as I said, uh, computers learn from data. So they need a lot of data. So we're trying to put together resources and data that people can, can use themselves in order to get a hand on, the, on this climate crisis. My day job, uh, my, my main project is um, with regards to visualizing climate change. And so essentially um, I find that the main obstacle for humanity to act on climate change is this problem we have of actually imagining it, of visualizing climate change. And I think that AI can help with that. So we're working on a project that takes uh, climate models that exist, that have been around for a long time and have, are updated regularly by the IPCC, by, by organizations, and essentially they're numerical models, right? They're really hard to, to actually see. Like even if you download it, it's just a bunch of numbers and someone has to do this conversion. And often the conversion is in degrees of warming. It can be in RCPs, which are projections of, of where the planet is gonna go in the future. But we're creating images from these models, essentially taking their projections and, and transforming them to images. Essentially we're creating a website where someone can log in uh, or just visit the website, enter an address and see based on the, on the global climate models, how this address is going to change. So it can be flooding. So currently flooding is, is our best uh, transformation, but it can also be drought. It can also be smog. It can be lots of different things depending on where people live. And so our idea is to make this kind of abstract concept as concrete as possible and to help people get a grasp of climate change. So um, I'm looking forward to this discussion and um, answering any questions you may have. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Sasha. A lot to unpack there, and I'm looking forward to digging into it a little bit more. Before we do that, let me throw it over to Andrew and ask Andrew to share some intro remarks. 
That's great. Hi, everybody. It's terrific to be here with all of you. And I'm going to give you a, a, about a 10-minute quick presentation on, uh, on some of the work that we're doing using data and AI to help drive systems-level change in how we think about stewarding the planet. And I just want to say this is such a weird moment. And it's a particularly dispiriting moment when we realize that the global pandemic that we're in the middle of is really just a subset of this much larger set of nested crises and that we, you know, we're living in this really remarkable moment. We know from the scientific consensus that we have less than 10 years to avoid locking in the worst effects of climate change, which Sasha is making visible to everyone. And we are living through really a series of connected crises in climate, in the loss of nature, and in the effects that they have on within the human community. So these three sort of huge challenges that, that are all happening to us concurrently. And, and we're in this sort of weird vertigo moment where we are facing civilization scale and planetary scale challenges. You know, at the same moment that we're living through the sixth extinction and we're living through the climate crisis, we're also living through the second renaissance. We're living through a period where we have the most powerful tools that we've ever had to bring to bear on those challenges to help illuminate them and to help guide our, our collective action on them. And so, you know, if you're, we're, we're in between these very powerful downsides and very powerful upsides and reasons for optimism and reasons for pessimism. So if you're optimistic, there's good data to suggest why you might be optimistic about our ability to solve these problems. If you're pessimistic, there's good evidence for why you should be pessimistic. And if you're confused and in the middle, there's lots of reasons for feeling vertiginous. I want to share with you a little bit about what we do here at Planet as Marcus mentioned, we're a space and AI organization, and the focus on how we create more inclusive planetary stewardship is a significant focus for us. Our mission is to use space to help life on Earth. Uh, we were founded with that mission, and we're structured in a, and governed in a way to, to sort of drive that. Our practical mission is to image the whole Earth every day and to make global change visible, accessible, and actionable. So what Sasha's doing is terrific. It's She's actually also making change visible, accessible, and actionable by helping people understand it. We use the same tools to try to understand both what is and what might happen in the future. And the biggest reason for that has to do with salience, as, uh, as Sasha mentioned, which is that these changes are absolutely critical, but they're kind of cognitively removed from us on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not the sorts of things that have a high degree of salience. So making change visceral is a really critical part, and making it visible is a really critical part because uh, seeing change is the first step to making change, at least making intentional change. Let me walk you through a little bit about what we do. The, the organization that I, I work for and I oversee what's called our Global Impact Portfolio, uh, so I touch much of our work on sustainable development and on climate and on humanitarian affairs and how we use these tools to achieve their highest and best purposes. The anchor is the development of these small-scale satellites, which we've deployed in a constellation around the Earth, essentially orbits from the North Pole down over the equator between the Sun and the Earth, and then under the South Pole and then up the dark side of the Earth. And as the Earth turns sideways underneath them, they collectively image the entire surface of the planet every day at roughly three meters per pixel. And then we have a second group of satellites that can zoom in selectively anywhere on the Earth and image multiple times a day at 70 to 80 centimeters per pixel. So we use the, the daily monitoring of the Earth to understand what gross level change is occurring. And then we use the higher resolution assets to go in and understand. But taking pictures from space is really just the beginning because, you know, the use of AI and machine learning 
is extraordinarily, to an extraordinary degree, it's gated by data, by our ability to, to pull new kinds of information in. So we're producing, we start by producing large amounts of information. Then what we do is we use the tools of machine learning and computer vision, the same tools that Google uses to tell you whether that's a picture of a puppy or a kitten, to classify what we're seeing in the imagery. So for instance, this is a picture from, from downtown San Francisco near where our offices are. All the buildings here are in blue, all the uh, roads in red, and we continuously extract this kind of structural insight, and not just for roads and buildings, but for planes and boats and deforestation and a number of other critical categories of things. And that allows us to get a sense for uh, the kind of next order of change. In fact, actually, we're not doing it just here in San Francisco, or but what we can do here at Planet is, is not just look at all the roads and buildings, say, in downtown San Francisco, but we can capture them at any arbitrary time point continuously for anywhere in the world or indeed for everywhere in the world. Now, what can you do with that kind of data? I'm, I'm going to give you an example in a minute, but before I do, I, I want to give you just a basic framework for how we think about this. So we're all living through this massive information revolution. There are sensors in the sky, in your pocket, in space, on the ground, in the oceans that increasingly are giving us a sense for what's happening in these complex systems. There's actually way too much information to pay attention to. So there's what we think of as the insight revolution, which is really about machine learning, deep learning, computer vision, and other forms of statistical analysis that allow us to pull out meaningful insights. And if you have those kinds of meaningful insights, like you can see where all the roads and buildings are, eventually you can build new kinds of indicators. And we think of these as big indicators in the same way that we think of big data. That is to say, real-time indicators that tell us about the health and wellness of the world's most vital systems in real time in a way that can drive action. And how do we get that action? It's really the last layer here. It's building new kinds of instruments, by which we mean technology, policy, and especially finance instruments that can guide capital and resources to the problems and to the issues where, where they can make the most uh, difference. There's a lot of information at the bottom and there's lots of value at the top. So to go back to that question about what do we do when we can see, say, all the roads and buildings, let me give you an example of how we can use that to produce a real-time climate risk indicator for vulnerable populations that might not have otherwise benefited from these uh, technologies. Because the satellite system doesn't discriminate between Bangladesh and Beverly Hills, we're seeing everywhere with the same resolution and frequency. What we can do is take that daily satellite imagery, and here I'm going to give you an example in monitoring climate flood risk, climate-related flood risk. We can take that daily satellite imagery, we can extract using the tools of supervised machine learning those critical insights that give us a sense for where all the buildings are, in this case, and how they're changing month on month. And then when we overlay on top of that a climate risk fl a flooding model related to climate risk, suddenly we can see an aggregate picture of risk for populations and communities that haven't normally benefited from these kinds of tools. It's essential that we then use these tools to help a whole host of actors. This is the foundational kind of insight that can be used for new forms of climate risk insurance or new realms of climate risk financing, or even for communities to advocate for their own climate rights and for climate justice, which is just as important. Again, we think of data as not just a tool for taking action, but also as a tool for building social equity, which is a theme I'll return to in a second. The second example I want to share with you is, is using this tool for biodiversity, conservation, and 
uh, and ecological protection. This is an example of a huge project we're doing with our colleagues at Vulcan, Paul Allen's uh, a group, and a group of uh, renowned institutions, including the University of Queensland and Arizona State University. And what we're doing is collectively mapping and monitoring all of the world's coral reefs in unprecedented detail. And we're making all of that data available as a public good for conservation purposes and for scientific research purposes. We use the satellite imagery to take crystal clear images of where all of the world's reefs are. And then we use the tools of machine learning to characterize every single piece of those reefs. And then because we can do that every day and every week, we can build monitoring systems that show us the very earliest signs of coral bleaching so that we can de-intensify human impacts when they, when they really need to be de-intensified. The, the thing that's really important about this is that this kind of work can only happen when you have data that comes from the at the planetary scale, which in this case happens to be satellites or could come from other kinds of sensor networks, but needs to capture the whole system and needs to do it regularly with data that's also collected on the ground. And we're using the tools of machine learning to combine targeted crowdsourced information or targeted uh, field collected ground truth information with the satellite imagery. And the thing that's exciting about that that I want to mention is that these tools can be used when the right social architecture is in place, really powerful things can happen. In fact, actually just recently in Eastern Sri Lanka, we just had some of the first new national parks named that were named in part because we had actually helped map them using this methodology. So uh, if we can connect communities on the ground to these tools, we can do really transformational things. The last couple of examples I'm just going to give you, then we'll, we'll turn to conversation with Marcus and, and, and Sasha, is some really extraordinary work we're doing with colleagues on climate. In particular, I want to mention just these, these couple. First is an organization called Carbon Tracker. Carbon Tracker uses exactly the same tools to estimate the utilization of coal-fired power plants around the world. And what they do is they measure not just the plumes, so to see when they're actually active, but they measure the volume of the coal piles that are next to the plants. So they can see those going up and down because coal-fired power plants aren't used every day to really carefully calculate emissions and utilization to get a sense of how much carbon, how much the plants are being used and how much carbon is being put into the atmosphere as a result. Similarly, we have seen great uh, results using these kinds of technologies to estimate things like pollution in the atmosphere, uh, in particular emissions that are direct, directly intersect with COVID. Right now, dumping PM 2.5 into the atmosphere, these small particulate matters, has, has a really profound impact on how many people get sick. And being able to ensure that we know where emissions are happening, where air pollution is occurring, is an essential part of our global COVID response. This is just one example that actually allows us to see from these plumes exactly which sectors and which plants are actually operating, even though they might have been required to, to shut down or not. This happens to be ha happening during the COVID crisis in Beijing. And then finally, I'll mention that in particular in relation to COVID, in general, we always, you know, we're going to have to de-intensify agriculture to achieve our climate and sustainability ambitions. We're going to have to learn how to be more ecologically efficient and how to grow more with less. The next billion people that will arrive in this decade aren't even here yet. And we've got to figure out how to feed not just a hungry world today, but a a larger world tomorrow. Our colleagues at Atlas AI are, are using the satellite imagery to produce highly accurate 
not just analytics of what's currently happening with agriculture, but predictive analytics. In this case, maize yield predictions that allow people to get some sense of, of how much food will be available. And in an era right now, in a moment right now, when especially in East Africa, we're seeing the intersection of COVID plus the locust infestation creating real potential risk and vulnerability, these kinds of tools will be used in a very actionable way. In fact, they already are to help determine how to keep people safe and make sure that they get fed. Anyway, this is just a few examples to give you a sense. You know, there are, we could give you a hundred more, but there's a new regime, I think, emerging where institutions have the ability to be guided by real-time and even predictive information to make more effective decision-making and to take more inclusive stewardship of the earth. And that's a really, that's a systems change to the way that we typically think about governing the planet and, and the way we think about stewarding and living on the planet. And it's a really exciting time to, to be thinking about how, what this means for the future of all the institutions that we work for. Anyway, thank you very much. And maybe Marcus, back over to you. Great. Thanks so much. So I think one thing that jumps out to me immediately from both of your introductory talks is that you're really both focused on visualization of earth systems in some way. That's a clear link between the two of you. Interesting broad question. I just want to throw out to you if I can ask you to get a bit philosophical. So we celebrated 50 years of Earth Day this year. And part of the sort of original environmental movement that led to the celebration of Earth Day was one of the first photos of planet Earth from space, which I think was a late 60s photo. Um, 70s, yeah, but absolutely. And that was, that led to, for instance, the Little Blue Dot poem by Carl Sagan and a lot of sort of reflection by some folks on, you know, what does, what does Earth mean um, in the context of broader society and our universe and our place in the universe. So the question is, now that we have new and accelerating tools for visualizing earth systems, do you think that there might be a similar cultural impact with being able to visualize either earth systems or insights, or even some of the projections like what Sasha is working on about visions of what could be in our changing climate? Do you think that will create a cultural shift or what are your thoughts on that? Maybe uh, Sasha and then Andrew, I'm interested in both your perspectives. Sure. I think that cognitive biases are a big part of why we're having trouble acting on climate change as a, as a society. I did part of my studies in, in cognitive science, and it's true that we're wired in a certain way to respond to threats that we see and that are eminent, imminent, sorry. Um, and so this is obviously ha not helping us act on climate change. So it's not really like a tiger pouncing from the bushes. It's something that's very abstract far away in time and space. So I think that we're finally at the point when we can use remote sensing and AI to, to make it more concrete. I think that there's precedent, like you mentioned, uh, the blue dot, but also I think images of the ozone layer uh, were a big part of assigning the Montreal Protocol like people finally saw what it meant that the ozone layer had a massive hole in it. There's this action intention gap in a lot of things like even stopping smoking, like climate change, like you 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 want to do, you want you want to stop smoking, you want to you want you know stop eating red meat, all these things. But then the the actual action is harder to um, to attain. So I think that imagery is really something that can bridge that gap. It's a great question, Marcus. You know, what you're referring to is, especially is what's commonly referred to as the overview effect. Yeah, I think it was the Apollo uh, 11 astronauts who, and maybe, actually, maybe, I think the original pale blue dot was Apollo 17 in, in the early 1970s. All the astronauts who went to the moon described this overwhelming feeling of spiritual awe and reverence, not 
as we commonly imagine, just because they could see the disk of the earth, but because they could so easily put their thumb over that and actually blot out all of existence as they understood it. So there's a sense of not just the beauty of the earth, but also its fragility and how easy it was for them from that vantage point to, to cognitively remove themselves from existence. And that's, that's such a powerful and transformational experience that, that they, uh, astronauts who had that experience said, we just want to drag every world leader up here to have that experience there. All of politics would change. The wonderful book, by the way, I tied this guy named Benjamin Grant, and is just filled with pictures that are designed to encourage the same kind of reverence. It's a psychological and a spiritual effect. And I think in some ways, there is a unique opportunity to bring that to the ground. And I think Sasha's exactly right. We, we, our problem is one of cognitive bias, that you know, human salience is a terrible proxy for whether or not we should conserve a species or change our emissions or grow in a particular way or engage in a certain set of practices. Because so much of what's so damaging, but almost because it's not salient, just falls out, it falls outside of our, our perspective. So seeing change is a way of encouraging stewardship. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that with these technologies. Okay. Let me just pick up on that exact theme. Um, something we're seeing a lot of in the culture, in the press, is that people are noticing changes. Not everyone's had the opportunity to go to space. It's something I'd love to do. Uh, let me digress for a second. Uh, our CEO of XPRIZE, Anusha Ansari, I remember we were at a staff meeting recently and somebody asked her to reflect. We were celebrating the anniversary of her trip to space. She spent time on the International Space Station. And someone asked her to reflect on that experience and she brought up that effect, that overview effect of sort of not just a shift in uh, literal perception of the world, but also sort of a shift in philosophical perception um, as a result of that vantage point. On Earth, many people are noticing things like rewilding, Bird songs are louder, the air is cleaner, traffic's down, less noise in the, in the ocean, uh, vistas that we can see for the first time. And there was a lot of discussion through April as we get into Earth Day about, wow, people are really noticing what the future could be or getting a glimpse into a different way of living. Curious, do you think this is a galvanizing moment? Do you think it's just a blip that will pass? And in particular, do you see an opportunity for visualization and learning based on, let's say, machine learning or computer vision to move forward in this moment? I'm a bit skeptical about this because we still think it's an external effect. So I think most people, you know, most people didn't choose to be on lockdown. So we see it as an externality, like people, someone forced us to stay home, right? And then this happened, which is obviously positive, but I don't think people see it as, as their, their impact. So it's not, it's not like as a direct consequence of your actions. It's indirect because someone imposed this. And then so we have, uh, for example, cleaner air or birdsong. So I think that people still have this disconnect between our impacts on the environment. And we often Ooh. underestimate how much power as individuals we have to change our environment. And so maybe this is a first step, but I'm skeptical that it's going to really help people be like, oh yeah, I'm going to stay home all, all the time and then see the Himalayas, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's more like a, a temporary blip on the horizon. And then when we go back to real life, it's going to be like, oh, well that only happened because someone forced us to do it. So I, I think that people should start being more aware of what their actions are as individuals on the environment. And that's not necessarily visual, sadly. I'd love to, to share a quick observation with you. You know, we talk about how 
COVID, and I'll just say it at, at the top, I'm a little more optimistic than Sasha is about this um, for a couple of reasons, which is that we talk about how COVID, this moment in which there's been all of this fundamental change is a kind of seismic moment. We, we, you know, we love those kinds of metaphors. In this case, it literally is a seismic moment, but the earth has literally quieted as human activity upon its surface has diminished. All over the world, people who are seismologists have noted this signal of the reduced human uh, footprint. So, and I think there's a, there's a number of reasons to suggest why there might be new political movements and new political opportunities. First of all, around the world, people have seen with shock and awe what it means like for there to be clear air. And we know that the effect of air pollution on COVID is really significant. And the question is, on the other side of this, will we force people to make choices between, say, their health and their work, between their lungs and their industry? And I don't mean this their traditional industries. I mean just the industriousness of, of working on the earth. I think the other thing that we, we've come to an appreciation of is that COVID in particular is not a natural disaster. It's an ecological disaster. And as an ecological disaster, it's rooted in the relationship between human beings and the natural world. And in particular, most of these novel zoonotic illnesses, the ones that jump from wildlife into livestock and humans and, and go back and forth, the, the flashpoints are where human beings are putting pressure on the landscape, where, where we're actually changing the land. I am certain, just as a matter of global public safety, come uh, pressures on governments around the world and on communities around the world to de-intensify their, their impacts on these wildlife habitats, in part because it's just not safe to do so. So the combination of kind of emergent political forces the real world experience of actually being able to breathe deeply in downtown Delhi or in downtown Beijing for the first time in decades and an understanding of the intersection of the way these complex systems works, I think they create a new opportunity at least for, and the fact that we've stopped now, so this is the last piece, we stopped and we're going to have to make intentional choices about how to restart. All of those things come together in a way that I think if we're quite careful we can, we can align to bouncing forward as opposed to just bouncing backward to, to where we were. Okay, great. I appreciate that. Uh, a nuanced answer, but something for us all to uh, think about. Um, uh, just a throwaway comment. I'm interested if the unwinding of these effects in the short term will be reported in the same way that sort of the economy reopening has been reported or the, the revelation of cleaner air and quieter bird song and less vibration and things will be reported. Something we sure. should watch out for over the next few months. Okay, I'd like to shift into a slightly different theme, which is you guys have presented, or you've, you've both presented really compelling and interesting visions of applications of AI and ML to not just observing Earth systems, but actually putting that insight into practical action. And they're rooted in things like the SDGs, environmental sustainability, climate, I think that's pretty clear. I want to point out, though, that I think for a lot of folks, AI and machine learning are maybe new technologies that may be a little bit intimidating. And they certainly aren't part of the traditional environmental movements tool set. So it's, it's almost like the tech community is coming at this from a different perspective, even though we're all marching toward the same goal. So I'm asking if you think that there truly is a cultural divide between quote unquote traditional environmental movement and let's call it the AI and machine learning uh, environmental movement, or do you think that's just uh, a misnomer and there's a different way we should think about it? What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question, Marcus. Let me start by acknowledging a fundamental problem, 
The first one is that the tech community writ large has sometimes sort of the experience of, of people who are working in social and ecological stewardship on the front lines you know, it can be a little bit like the UFO lands in the front yard and people walk out and like, we have the tool, right? You know, they're like, we come from the future and here it is, right? And, and it's designed for and not with the people who are intended to use it. There's no sense of social pull. It's, it's like we've developed this in a in relative vacuum. There, it, it happens in the context of longstanding issues of colonialism and neocolonialism in which the many of the centers of excellence for these technologies come from the north and the west and so there's a whole set of questions and, and around around how the social relationships between the people who are the makers and the people who are the users and beneficiaries and stakeholders of these technologies one of the critical challenges we have is is a problem of what I, what I think of as sort of death by pilot projects. And, and what often happens in th there's like so many tiny little examples of these projects that, that end up being extractive. That is to say, you show up and you eat up a community you're trying to serve attention and then you extract data and you leave, frankly, very little value back uh, in the communities. And then often the funding dries up and the attention moves on. So I think it's not a function of whether these technologies can be helpful. There's no question they can be because we, we have institutions as a consequence of all this and communities that are trying to solve 21st century problems with 19th century tools when they could be using more effective tools in some regards. But it's about the power and social relationships between the people who come together around these problems. It's about the institutional framework that privileges big multilateral institutions over people who are living in these communities. I'd as much like to work with the local indigenous community who's actually stewarding the land as I would the kind of big nonprofit in the North or the West in, in the global North. So we have to figure out new architectures of participation and social equity, but I think the gap is closable. So I'm optimistic that it's closable, but we have to go at the problem, which isn't tech, it's people. I totally agree with Andrew. And actually, uh, the more I learn about the different kinds of projects that exist and that exist in ML and climate change in general, I feel that the most successful projects, the ones that make the most impact concretely are those that are on the forefront between ML and domain experts. So, I mean, I, I have seen a lot of these like pilot projects that are super cool and then, you know, bring together different data sets and then sometimes also invent a problem that they themselves solve which, you know, sometimes gives us a bad rep. Like I remember a meeting with some stakeholders who, climate scientists who came to Mila and then I showed them some of the work that people are working on. And I mean, they, they kind of laughed. They were like, yeah, this is cute, but how about like real problems? And then I'm like, well, what are real problems? Like, let us know. Because of course, everyone's kind of, to the extent that they know a field, you're, you're going to try to, to do your best um, and, to, and to deploy your, your knowledge. But until you have someone in-house who's telling you, no, that, that's, that's silly, don't spend time working on this. We don't have data for that. So how about you help us gather data instead, like what Andrew's doing, right? And sometimes it's like, what you think is a problem is not even a problem. It's just that you're projecting your own kind of either colonialist or just, you know, just naive kind of notions of, of what you think are problems just based on your own experience. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. But that's why um, we advocate a lot at Climate Change AI, like work with the experts, connect with the experts, reach out and, and you know, 
the projects that are going to go farthest are the ones that have the, the most uh, diverse and complementary teams. Of course, if you stay in your ivory tower of ML, uh, it's hard to make a real world impact. If I could pick up on that just for a second, because I think Sasha said a couple of really important things there. The first one that I just want to point out is, we, there, first of all, there are amazing organizations that are working with communities and with people around the world. And I, I notice a funny cognitive bias among people who develop these tools, which is that when we describe the engineers and the scientists and the technical folks who are working on this, we refer to them as the people. Like, yeah, you work with the people who know what they're talking about. But then we use this whole set of other distancing language when we talk about the people that are, at the, that are also enmeshed in a web of mutuality with us, which are the people that we want to use these tools. They become stakeholders or beneficiaries. These are words that sound like they belong in insurance policies. And if we just flip them around and said, you know, we refer to everybody as people, if we refer to everybody, if we, if we think in community terms and not just institutional terms, Sasha said this one little thing, I'm, and Sasha, this is not, I'm not picking on you at all, because it was great that you said this, and I believe everything you said, I agree with everything you said. But you use this word, you know, in your house, right? It, it was just, it was just a little throwaway phrase. One of the things we should think about is just this question of like social distancing. We have problems of social distancing under normally good times, which is we're too socially distant from the people and communities. One of the things that we're, we're working on is let's get into the field. Let's go live with the people we want to serve for a bit. Let's actually live in, let's build some social solidarity and then think about what happens. And that's a different way of, of saying what Sasha said, which is one of the biggest problems is we have a lot of people who made a lot of money building AI can openers or dating applications or you name it. And suddenly you say, well, I can apply this to this problem because, because they're naive. And I think it's mostly naivete. Their naive view is that this is the way the world works. And in fact, actually, it's not even remotely how the world works in most, in most instances. So we have to close our own social gaps before we can begin. It's a little bit like close, close the social distance before you start building, I guess is my, would be my advice. Yes. Okay. I hear where you're coming from. I want to probe on this topic just a little bit. Are we affecting anything with all these sensors or just building a gigantic cage? To me, I think this is part of a broader theme of, are these just shiny new tools that the people are interested in, or is there something fundamentally new and different and better outcomes that we can expect from these things? And I think also I'll just add, I think it speaks to the history, the track record of technology increasing mm. our broader mm. environmental sustainability is mixed. Some, some people see it as really, really helpful. Other people see technology, technological advancement as something that actually takes us backward in that step. So do you think machine learning and AI fall into that trap? Curious your thoughts. First of all, there's no question that we build a lot of things because they're buildable and not because they're necessary and because they're useful. And we live uh, in bubbles of our own ignorance, as we were discussing a minute ago. So there's a lot of wasted effort and there's a lot of things that were built because they were what people knew how to build. And we need a bigger social imaginary to, and, and a wider variety of people who are participating in the acts of imagination that drive what could be. That said, there is no question, I mean, we see it every single day, that these tools can but are having really profound actual consequences on the ground and in communities. And I, I want to just say, I think they're like 
less than one one hundredth of one percent fully unfurled. So we are just seeing the, the beginnings of the tendril shooting through the ground. We're not seeing a fully grown tree or anything like that. But, you know, the reality is that we know that if you put information in the hands of indigenous communities, they can advocate in the context of, of systems that are often aligned against them for their land rights, for instance. And we know that one of the most effective ways to ensure uh, conservation of biodiversity and intact forests is to ensure indigenous ownership and stewardship of those communities. So these tools are powerful in their evidentiary role in empowering communities. And we say information is power, big information, big data is big power. If we just give that power to big institutions, even if we made it free today, if we didn't take the extra effort to make sure that it was in the hands of everybody, then what you do is if you have in a society, you have two groups, you have the, you know, this group level of social powers here, this group's level of social powers here, and you, you throw a bunch of free data at them, this group becomes this much more powerful and this group becomes this much more powerful and you've actually increased the net inequality between them. So we have to make sure that we take the extra effort to ensure that we create more balanced forms of social power. And, but we see this actually happening every day. We see it happening with real communities and NGOs. And, and one of the most important things about these tools this is the last little bit of this answer is that they represent a, an independent source of truth. Uh, just think about how um, embattled the truth has become in the last you know, five to 10 years in particular, how suspicious we are of global media, how suspicious we are of storytelling and of evidence in general. This is a new form of evidence. It's difficult to tamper with and it enables people to say, okay, we're having a political argument, but this is what's actually going on. And so I could give you countless examples of where that's happening today with COVID, with the conflict between nations, with large institutions engaging in malevolent environmental practices, on and on and on. AI turns data into social power if we think about it in, in those terms and if we, if we do it right. And just to build on what Andrew said, we did a hackathon at some point that was like AI for good. And then we went out and we were like, oh, we're not going to be one of those, <laughs> one of those people. We're going to go and reach out to NGOs. So we went around Montreal meeting NGOs and asking them like, give us your data. How can we help you? And then most of the answers we got was what data? And can you give us lessons on, you know, how to use uh, Excel or, or how to set up, you know, a management system for our inventory and things like that. And then we realized that, you know, we wanted to use AI to do cool stuff. And then maybe five, five years down the road, we'll be ready for that. Uh, but now we should start doing instead, like, just, just tutorials about what data is or, or how, how it could help, right? And we ended up doing some workshops and things like that. And it made me realize to what extent, like a lot of these, especially the on the ground deployable solutions that have people who are supposed to, you know, take them and do something with them, not, not like, not necessarily a sensor or something that can be fairly independent, but solutions that essentially hinge upon people using them that we're not there yet so that the, the you know, the, the, the vast majority of people are okay with taking a neural network and being like, hey, yeah, I'm going to use this in my daily life, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot to be done. We have to prove ourselves first. Okay, appreciate that. I think there's so much more we could say in that topic. I'd love to hit one more theme, and this is, we're having this conversation in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, most of us have never seen anything like this. First question, what's the conversation inside these communities about application of these tools specifically to COVID-19, whether it's the health aspect 
for the economics aspect. So I, I realize we're going a little bit outside of the theme of environment, but also um, I know there are a lot of close links. So what are your thoughts on that? Is this a movement? Is it already happening? It's definitely happening. I co-wrote a paper about AI and COVID. Uh, I mean, how it can be used to help COVID. We identified actually three scales, which I found are, are really interesting and kind of defined it on a on a good, you know, succinct level. There's the molecular scale. So AI is being used for vaccine discovery. So molecular discovery, uh, and essentially you can explore a bigger space of molecules using AI. There's like the clinical and patient scale where you can, for example, analyze CT scans, you can predict patient outcome using more data and things like that. So um, that's being used already in hospitals. I know that hospitals, for example, in Montreal and across the US are using uh, these kinds of AI systems in order to essentially flag patients that might need uh, ICU capacity, for example. And then there's a societal scale. So there's the actual epidemiological side of it. And then there's actually another, um, they call it the infodemic scale. So there's actually so much information and news that people are overwhelmed. So uh, the WHO is having difficulty in, in keeping abreast of this kind of wave of misinformation. So on these, on these three scales, we identified all these different applications. And, and I think that, you know, it all hinges upon adoption. And so, for example, how do you get a hospital to, to use a tool, uh, given that it's a new, like we've never seen this kind of virus before, uh, I mean, in our lifetime. So how do you expect them to trust you with your tool, right? And where's the data coming from and, and things like that. So I think in, in terms of operationalization, we're not there yet, but conceptually speaking, there's a lot of things to be done. Couldn't agree with you more, Sasha. I really think the points about the infodemic in particular are really, we, sh we should talk more about that in this session. Just a quick thing on, on COVID, geospatial data and AI and machine learning uh, models together have relevance for four categories of use cases, four kinds of things in which they can be helpful. So the first one is about modeling, epidemiological modeling of the of potential of spread, epidemiological modeling of the risk of importation into communities. So those are all proxies. Uh, and in fact, actually geospatial data is used enormously in spatial epidemiology today already to help model that. And we are helping uh, numerous organizations that are working in epidemiological modeling. We're both working with and exploring new ways of helping them with, with this in, in real time. The second one is around monitoring for risk. And there are risks within the system that is the spread of coronavirus. But it's important to note that one of the signature effects of COVID and any pandemic is the ways in which it amplifies risks that are not related, that are ancillary. So let me give you three examples. Well, one is that in California, we have these enormous wildfire risks where you can have enormous, you know, not quite uh, Australia scale burns, but, but really for, our, uh, for the region, they're really significant. Well, because of the shelter in place effort in California, a bunch of prescribed activities that had to happen in advance of the fire season didn't occur because there was nobody to do them. And so the risk of wildfire goes up during COVID. In Sub-Saharan Africa, the, no one has quite figured out the relationship between say malaria and TB and COVID risk. We assume that they're negative, but there are uh, complicated interactions in the public health space that we don't know. And then in general for Africa more broadly and many other places in the world, they're going to be these issues of food security, um, which, you know, our, our colleagues who, who study this look, they use words that are biblical in terms of scale. 
So they're monitoring emerging forms of risks both within the particular epidemiological path and other forms of risk that get amplified as consequence. The third one is actually looking at where resources are and connectivity are so you can plan response. And the last one, which we hope comes soon, is going to be about how do we measure the recovery and how do we begin to see what it looks like for the system to come back. Data and AI are going to play a role in all four of those places without question in really significant ways. Okay, appreciate that. Really quickly to the both of you, do you perceive that COVID-19 is going to dramatically change the field of AI and machine learning? Or do you think it'll have a, you know, just the tailwinds will sort of continue? Is this a pivotal moment or is it really just something different? I think that it's going to make us realize to what extent we're not quite there yet. So I think that if we had a bit more time, uh, a bit more, uh, I, mean, I don't want to say a bit more pandemic, but like, I mean, when the pandemic hit, we weren't ready to say, okay, well, yeah, we've got these like AI tools we can deploy in hospitals. We've got, you know, all the levels set up. Yeah, we're going to help the WHO filter all, through all the noise. And so we're, we're ramping up, but I'm, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll make people realize to what extent we need more integration. We need more foresight, essentially. No, no question. We, we definitely need to yoke strategic foresight to the application of these tools. And so, you know, this is a moment when I think you've got two things happening. One is we've got these very powerful tools and we've got high degrees of uncertainty. And so how we think about using them is something for, you know, all of my friends who work in strategic foresight and and long-term thinking need to be engaged now, even as these tools get applied now in real time. We'll just say there's no question in my mind that this period is going to drive an enormous explosion in the use of AI and machine learning for a couple of reasons that are ancillary to the ones that we're talking about here. The the main one being that we're going to see an enormous push for automation. Investments in automation sort of counterintuitively grow during periods of recession. In fact, actually, in part because we're going to have this very uneven effort at recovery, uh, which is going to be very improvisational. But over the last 30 years, for instance, if you just look in the developed West, every time we have a major recession, that's when we put in uh, spurts of, of innovation around automation and labor replacement, which is itself an enormous set of questions beyond the scope of this discussion today. But I think we're going to see th- those activities accelerate both automation, machine learning, and, and AI applications especially because we've got a problem, just to think about it very basically, we've got a problem that's bigger than us. And we've rate limited the number of people can work on it because we're all sheltering in place. So we're gonna have to use tools to fill in the the gap. And so I, I would expect it will be a tipping point. Thanks for tuning in to the Future Positive Podcast. Be sure to tune in next week for a brand new episode. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with your friends and fellow optimists. And remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback is important. Speaking of AI, XPRIZE and Cognizant have partnered to launch the Pandemic Response Challenge, a challenge focused on developing AI and data-driven systems to predict COVID-19 infection rates and prescribe intervention plans that regional governments, communities, and organizations can implement to minimize harm when reopening their cities and starting their economies. You can learn more at xprize.org slash pandemic response. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making change in the world 10 times faster. 
Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to make it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week! Hold up! What was that? Boring! No flavor! That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.